Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Okay, Grace, I have to tell you something that I found out literally 30 seconds before we jumped on this call mm-hmm. while I was doing my my mathematician um, counting on my fingers. Yeah. Basically, you know, I've been trying to be super healthy since I did that detox the other week and now I'm trying to do, you know, 80-20. You don't need to drink wine all the time. You don't need to eat fries all the time. So I was like, Obviously, I have to drink for this episode of the podcast because there was some feedback last week, predominantly from my boyfriend's mum and your mum, <laughs> that we both sounded dead last week. Oh, I not no not about us last week, but whenever I don't have a drink, my mum like calls me and says that she's worried about my mental health, and it's always just the <laughs> week that I haven't drank. <laughs> we sound like we want to die. So funny, yeah. So I was like, okay, I've got a drink, but. I don't want wine, so I'll get something low calorie. So then I went and found a skinny margarita recipe and made this skinny margarita with just basically limes and tequila and then looked at the recipe and was like, how is this 187 calories? And then I go to my housemate, wait, how is this 187 calories? It's literally limes and fresh orange juice and tequila, which has zero calories. And she was like, what? And I was like, tequila, alcohol has zero calories. And she was like, we're did you get that from? I just literally mm. my whole life thought that like vodka and straight spirits had zero calories. I think it's just vodka. No, vodka has them. They have 110. I just Googled it. Why did men lie to us when we were kids? I always thought that was a thing, that vodka was zero. Mm. Mm-mm. Watch yourself. 
Yeah, be vigilant, guys. I just think there's so many myths about nutrition and health and things that we think are healthy and are not healthy that are so funny. Like Caitlin Moran, who we've had on the podcast, tweeted something about how she'd never, ever lost weight in her whole life until someone explained to her that there's as much calories gram for gram in flour as there is sugar. Yeah, what? And I was like, what? So she was like, I was avoiding anything with sugar and then eating just pasta and bread and things in the like much bigger. Yeah, I actually haven't fact-checked that, so I don't know if that's true. I'm sure we'll have some <laughs> nutritionists messaging us being like, you girls are literally gooping out on the podcast, talking nonsense. Please always contact a medical <laughs> advisor, whatever they say. I have no idea about anything, and I was um... – I think like the generation above us just off the top of their head understands how, I don't know, maybe, maybe people in our generation just understand how nutrition works, but I just don't at all. I think nutrition is non-conclusive science. I think that's why the diet industry is so successful. I remember listening to Sam Harris interview a nutritionist and he was basically saying nutritionists can't even agree what a healthy breakfast is you could be split down the middle someone could say it's like oatmeal orange juice and a coffee and someone could say no it's bacon and eggs and a milky tea with no bread it's just what any given nutritionist believes is like (laughs) a better thing for you yeah so confusing but they all agree that alcohol is bad yeah my life hack is just to be really healthy during the So yesterday I was like really healthy during the day, went for a run and then just ate burger and fries. And I was like, that's how you do it. That's balance. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Um, what have you been consuming this week? Okay. So I don't have much to say about uh, this Netflix documentary, but I watched the BAFTAs, which sent me on a spiral of like, promising young woman content again because it won heaps of awards but also sent me (laughs) into watching this netflix documentary called my octopus friend i've weirdly heard of that it's basically this white middle-aged man who starts diving in the ocean every day and then makes friends with this octopus and i love (laughs) and i love animals so i was like i'm gonna love this But it was really cute when the octopus starts to trust him and they hang out for a little bit. But other than that, I was like, this man is deranged. How did this one a BAFTA? Really? Yeah. I feel like there was so much hype about it as this heartwarming tale. It's like that movie Grizzly Man. Oh, my God. Yes. I tried to watch that two weeks ago and I was like, I can't watch this. He's he's like an imbecile. He's insane. And he's going and living with these grizzly bears and he thinks that they're his friends. But he, yes. he's just an insane man and a bear ends up eating him. Yeah. Obviously. You're watching it and you're like, obviously, it's just a, 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 a number of minutes until you're eaten by one of these bears. <laughs> I got like 20 minutes into it and I was like, I can't watch this documentary. How is it rated so highly? But the one thing, the one animal tale that I can get behind is, um, fuck's sake, what's the lion's name? Lion YouTube. The one that hugged hugged the man. (laughs) (laughs) The fuck's it called? Oh, Lion YouTube. Remembers. Christian the Lion. Okay. (laughs) The one, yeah, the one 
animal story I can get behind is Christian the lion, which everyone should know. But my boyfriend had never seen it nor heard of it, which shows a lot. So we watched that on um, YouTube the other day and I was like crying where the (laughs) two British men went into, um, was it Harold's? And they had lion cubs for sale. And so they brought a lion cub to stop it from being in this department store in London and they raised it until everyone knows the story. It's like me, me. I don't know the story. I just, I just have seen the footage of the lion, like hugging the man. Right. Well then they raised it until it was too big to keep in their London flat and they felt horrible about it. So then they took it to Africa and set it free in a sanctuary. And then a year later they came back and they were told by everyone that the lion was now the head of the herd and wouldn't remember them, head of the pride Cute. or whatever it is. All grown up. And it was too dangerous to go out there. And they walked out into the um, wilderness and the lion sprints up to them and jumps on them. And it's like purring like a cat. I know. Oh, yeah, that's cute. That's why you like it. Yeah. You and Shiva. Cat vibes. <laughs> you and Frankie when you go to Rose Bay next. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so, yeah, that octopus thing, I don't know about it. But I also listened to a really good podcast episode. I can't pronounce this guy's name in French right, but his name's Alan, Alon de Botton. Alon. Alon de Botton on Being, which is a really great been around for ages podcast series. And this was from years ago, but they re-released it due to COVID. And basically he's a writer and a philosopher who writes a lot about love. His first book on love came out when he was only 23 years old and he's continued writing about it forever and he wrote a piece for the new york times a couple of years ago called why you'll marry the wrong person oh in 2020 and it was the most popular article of the year despite it being like covid and an election year and everything by a mile on the new york times anyway they re-released this episode and in it he just talks about how as people and as a culture we would be so much saner and so much happier if we re-examined our view of love and kind of realistically teach ourselves and our children how love isn't this fairy tale thing that you see in the movies and love is hard and it evolves and it's much more to do with ourselves than what is right or wrong about our partner and it talks about he talks about what we've talked about in the podcast before about how people think that their partner should be their everything so their partner should be their best friend their partner should be their lover their partner should be the person they go to the supermarket with their partner should be the person they like I don't know, do boring errands with plus uh, are taken on these like crazy romantic adventures with and how it's just so unrealistic. Basically, he says we're taught it's an enthusiasm, but it's a skill and it requires all of these skills to be able to love someone properly. And then it's like really hard work. And so I thought it was so interesting. And I bought The Course of Love, which I know you've read one of his books after listening to it. Yeah, that's the only book of his that I've read, but it was amazing. Yeah, I read the first chapter and already that was amazing. Yeah, I can't even remember what I learned from it, but I know that it changed my life, if that makes sense. It just Mm. made me totally, like you said, just, yeah, reframe what we expect from relationships. And the more you think about it, the more weird you realize it is. Yeah, he even says in a bit, like, it sounds weird, but to kind of approach arguments or situations with your partner as you would kind of a child like if a child is upset and they say I hate you your first response isn't to get upset back or to yell at them or to cry your reaction is what has upset them to make them feel this way 
and what's going on in this environment that's like caused that response in them. But instead with our partners, we're just so kind of, we like expect them to know everything about us and we expect them to be this thing that we're not even, like we can't Mm -hmm. read their minds, but we expect them to read our minds. So it was just very interesting stuff. Yeah, I read an interview with Philippa Perry, who's married to the artist Grayson Perry, and she's a psychologist. And she was saying kind of related to that, that the biggest mistake people make when they're arguing with their partners is that they keep arguing about the actual thing that they're arguing about. So it's like the trash being taken out or like the dishwasher or whatever. And so you're just yelling past each other because you're not going to sort out the actual thing. She was like, when you're fighting, you need to say, I I am feeling like I do more around the house. I am feeling like, but whatever, you kind of have to take it like talking to a child, like take it back to the kind of most primal version of what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. So it's not like you're arguing about them not doing the dishes. You're arguing about feeling like you're doing more around the house, but people just don't, yeah, communicate properly or something. And then also he was talking about how we're just so obsessed as a culture with the beginnings of love. So we're obsessed with that. Like all of the all of the movies are about when you first meet and when you fall in love and you literally don't even know the person. You've just been on like one date with them. And that's what we romanticize, but we never talk about the longevity of love or like the hard work of love totally so yeah that was really interesting and then now i'm just listening to heaps of armchair expert because of you and because i went after the baftas i wanted to listen to an emerald finale interview so i listened to her on fresh air and then i searched carrie mulligan on the podcast app and listened to her episode on armchair expert and it was so cute she's such a little muffin she's just been in the english countryside for the past six months with her kids and she's married to the guy from Mumford and Sons. Yeah. Which I didn't really know. Cute. How, how they met is so cute. Yeah. Yeah. Have you listened to this on Armchair Expert? No, I just know that story about them from writing all those oh. stupid How Your Favorite Couples Met articles. Right. Yeah. So, How Your Favorite Couple Met was that they were 11 and were at school camp together. And then they became pen pals. And then years later, she went to a house party and his band which is Mumford and Sons, but they weren't massive at the time, were playing at a party and then they rekindled their romance. It's so cute. Really cute. And that cute girl on um, Armchair Expert, that cute like Monica girl who is his co-host, she was just like, wow, wow, wow. Oh my God, wow. <laughs> yeah, so what's the deal with her? She's like their family nanny, but also the podcast co-host. I don't know. I heard in another episode I listened to her talking about, well, Dax referred to me as the nanny and I was really upset because I feel like what I do more is much more than being a nanny. Hmm. And I was like, this is random. But yeah, I know I've been listening to heaps of them as well. <laughs> she seems like she's the third person in their marriage. I started listening to mm. Kaylee Kuko's one as well, now that I'm obsessed with her after The Flight Attendant, which you still need to watch. I still need to watch, Yes. I listened to the Sofia Coppola one and I just realized what a chip on my shoulder I have about people who are born into wealth or people who are born into fame. Yeah. I love her and I love her work so much. She's very nonchalant about it, but just being like, oh, you know, like once my dad helicoptered us into Disneyland and it was just so funny. He's just such a fun guy like that. And I was like, shut up. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like that about Emerald for now. So British accents, I know I can tell the difference a bit with them, but not to the extent that someone from the UK can. And my boyfriend's British. And when 
she came on screen when she'd won a BAFTA, he was like, oh, I hate that person. And I was like, no, she's really cool. She's funny. She was the Killing Eve showrunner. She plays Camilla Parker Bowles on The Crown. She created Promising Young Woman. She's so clever. And he was like, she is filthy, filthy rich, like dripping with privilege. And I was like, what? And then he Googled it and she went to the school with all of the royal family. So she's like... (laughs) ludicrously wealthy just born into like this immense privilege and then her BAFTA's backdrop was her sitting on a grand piano in this like insane room and I was like crazy that you've hired that for the BAFTA's and he was like no that will be her house like get get around (laughs) this she will live in a palace and I was like that's crazy because then in in her BAFTA's acceptance speech she was saying Thanks to everyone who worked on Promising Young Women, um, we had like we didn't have two cents to rub together. And I was like, that sounds really bad if you're British and you're hearing your accent and seeing you sitting at a grand piano like dripped in jewelry. But yeah, <laughs> like, the privilege yeah. here is crazy. Like the the class system here is crazy. I think I was really naive about it. Even I was telling you, I was reading a bunch of Hadley Freeman's columns for for I don't know why on the weekend and she just kind of mentioned in a throwaway it wasn't in a throwaway thing it was about a book she's written about her family but she kind of just mentioned in this quite flippant way about how her I think father's side date back to Paris in the 1920s and everyone was friends with Picasso and Christian Dior and how she went to the Chanel show and Alexander de Batac who's like run does the production on every single fashion show ran up to her and was like oh my god we're cousins and she was like what and then he introduced me to everyone and I was like oh yeah I just I was like your life obviously your life isn't easy but the things like the thing that's hard about being in fashion is making connections so if you walk into a room and someone does that for you that's like the whole game Fran Lebowitz did an interview with Vanity Fair in the 90s where she said it in like a wrote in. She said it in a really funny way, but she was saying, you know, all these Hollywood actors that are kids of Hollywood actors always say in interviews, you know, I got my foot in the door, but that's all. And she's like, getting your foot in the door is the game. <laughs> yeah, literally. <laughs> a lot of people could act in front of a camera in a rom com if need be for twenty million dollars. You know, she's like, the the getting there is the hard part. The actual mm. work itself is the easy part. And I was like, that's so true. When you look at what we've done in media it was the getting to the the point where we got to do the writing that was hard like the writing itself was always the easiest part yes yeah emerald Fennell's 18th birthday party was covered in tatler yeah but it's wild that's here everyone everyone you look at here every model every like design not not everyone but a lot of people who you, you look at you dig beneath the surface and there's some insane family connection it's a hard one because if you're born rich and wealthy, like it doesn't make you not a lovely person. It doesn't make you not a talented person. It doesn't affect any of that. And it's not your fault. And you shouldn't apologize every time you stand up and be like, sorry, 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 because that would be annoying. Yeah, you can still be funny and talented. And obviously someone like Phoebe Willowbridge, who was also born into a really privileged position with parents in the industry and wealth, doesn't mean she's not talented and funny for creating Fleabag. And it doesn't mean like Emerald Fennell isn't really talented for this to be her feature-length film debut but it just means that she had an opportunity to do that feature-length film debut that a lot of people wouldn't get because they're worried about money and worried about how they pay the rent yeah or even just it being like Sophia Coppola was saying in that interview I loved fashion so my parents got me a job at the Chanel Atelier in Paris when I was 16 my god and it's like 
that just makes the world feel so open to you because then you you can literally consider any career because you know it's possible because you have like a link to it whereas if you grow up in a small town in the middle of nowhere it wouldn't even cross your mind that you could be a film director or like a pop star or a fashion designer Mm. because it's so like out of your reality yeah exactly and just not having to worry about money would just change everything like so many people go to university specifically to study things because of the money aspect like imagine if you just took that out of the equation yeah totally anyway Anyway, i watched that netflix new series called this is a robbery and it's about the world's most famous art heist and it's actually really interesting i saw that i was thinking of watching it yeah it kind of all these netflix documentaries are so cookie cutter that they, they use all the same music and scary stuff as like a serial killer documentary but the stakes are so low because it's like seven paintings they're like ooh, like all this all these scary photos were like dumb and it's like the guy it could potentially be and you're like this doesn't feel the same but it's it's just fascinating i think what's really interesting about it is that in the 80s because the art world took off as this commercial thing where everyone was buying art and the price of art was exploding there was this whole spate of art robberies from like organized crime groups that either used them to try and barter behind the scenes to get people lower sentences which actually happened in some cases which is crazy oh my god like someone would be like i'll tell you where this priceless renault is if you give him five years instead of a life sentence and then they also used it as like collateral for drug deals with the colombians so there's all of these like priceless pieces of art that are just being moved around the globe secretly for dodgy reasons that's what um nfts are like all about money laundering people are buying jpegs for thousands of dollars through nfts just so they can launder money to different countries i didn't even think of that yeah that's the huge thing about it people are selling literally like a photo of their foot for millions of dollars because people are transferring money across the world ah okay so explain to our listeners what nfts are Oh, honestly, I try to find out as little as possible about these, but um, I know. <laughs> you hate them. I just, yeah, I just was like forced to listen to a podcast about them for an hour, like six weeks ago. And then I was in the car and I was like going to do that ladybird maneuver when she takes off her seatbelt and rolls out of the car. I was like, this could not be more boring. But um, basically it is a way of... It stands for non-fungible transaction yeah so the way it was explained in this podcast episode from forever ago is you yeah it's a website and you put stuff on it so like a pair of sold out yeezy trainers you'll list on there and then people can buy them and then relist them for more so it's it's basically like a e-tailer but a reseller at the same time of like really so like heaps of art is on there and really prize positions because it's basically like an auction right but is, i thought it was that it's that they're all things that are only digital like they're just jpegs it's not physical items you can have like they're just digital assets but what about the art like the art's just a jpeg that's what's fucked about it so it's like you're buying something other people can have the jpeg but you officially own the original jpeg oh so like when kate moss did it she put up three photos that were taken of her by a photographer but like the photos are listed so you can hmm. screenshot them and save them but you're buying for like six hundred dollars like that original jpeg the photographer will send you and then you own that ah, okay well i don't really know what i was listening to then because i thought i you could, could be wrong buy actual shoes 
Anyway, it's like Etsy for men. Yeah, it's just like these weird little digital products. It's basically what men were doing during the pandemic while we were all, I don't know, working. It's their new hobby. But this is the thing that's like I had dinner with some friends who are artists the other day and they were saying that the thing with NFTs is what keeps happening with art where there just becomes this obsession over specific trends and people just shove money into it because they're scared of missing the boat and then that just creates these micro industries within the art world that have nothing to do with like talent or taste they're just to do with social media trends basically or like news trends so if there's a certain artist or person that gets hype and Elon Musk or Kanye West or someone will go in and buy something of theirs and then that will explode and then the knock-on effect will be all these people do and then whether the thing itself is actually important is gone because it's turned into like a commercial product. Basically like hype pieces in fashion. Yeah, exactly. Virgil or Jacquemus tiny bags. You're like, I don't even understand what's going on here, but I want one. Yeah, I know. It's it's so interesting. I think as well with art, it's so interesting because it's so subjective. I find art so difficult because I know it's subjective and I know you should be able to pick what you like, but I don't know what I like. If I had to pick what I liked, it would just be so ugly. I just have no idea. I just have no, I have no visual eye at all whatsoever. I don't think that's true. I feel like I've learned how to dress myself after working in fashion for this many years. But other than that, no idea what's going on. I just think it's so hard to tell what you just like because you're being told that you like it. But I guess that's just because you're being told that it's high art. That you're like, yes, that's high art. Mm. But I guess if it's like anything. If you studied it for long enough and if you learned the history of it, maybe it would just become obvious to you. Yeah, it's hard. Shall we talk about the book we've both been reading? Yes. So The best book. Yeah, the best book. Last week you were going to recommend the book I Love Dick, but you decided to veer off topic and recommend something else. But because you had it in the show notes, I saw it on the bookshelf at home and was like, I'm finally going to read this. And it is so different. I don't know what I was expecting, but it's so different to what I was expecting. It is... A book that was first published in 1997 by a New Zealander called Chris Krauss. I didn't know that because I'm not at the end yet. And she wrote it as thinly veiled fiction, but more just a memoir about her becoming crazily obsessed with one of her husband's colleagues. And she uses their real names. And in the book, she puts in the dozens and dozens, like hundreds of frantic, crazy love letters that she was writing him. I've never read a book like it, and I know it's semi-famous, but I feel like it should be so much more Mm. famous than it is, because I feel like it's one of the most incredible books I've ever read, because it's basically taking this thing that so many women are ashamed of, which is like how we can be crazy, frantic, psycho bitches when we develop a crush on someone, and like turning it into literature and like high art, and it's basically saying... There is a purpose for that experience for women that is like valuable and that should be explored and you shouldn't be shrouded in shame about it. It's like something, even if it is mortifyingly embarrassing, it's like something that you can explore and look into and that is like part of the experience of being a female. And it's funny because until you literally said this to me the other day over coffee when we were speaking about the book, I was like, I'd never realized, obviously I knew that 
myself and my friends, the way we respond to romantic relationships or the way we respond to men or people we have crushes on is different to the way that my guy friends do and is and the way I am with boyfriends is different to the way they are with me. But until I read this book and we talked about it, I didn't realize that it was predominantly a thing that happens to women. Like I hadn't thought of it as this thing that we never discuss. I'd never explored it in my brain as being like, okay, myself and every woman I know has had these wild crushes. Or when you meet someone, you just get obsessed with them. Like from the minute you meet them, you think about them all the time. Like we talked about that Camille Chariot article Mm. she wrote for Harper's Bazaar where she talked about meeting a guy at a party. I don't, did they even kiss? Or maybe they kissed once and she got so obsessed with him that someone gave her like a sticker with his name on it and she put it on the back of her phone and he knew she was so obsessed with him for like years and years and years and you have this fantasy version of themselves in your mind that isn't even reality and you think you're meant to marry this person you think it's fate but I'd never thought of that as being this wider thing that women experience that men don't I think people call it limerence where it's like not love because you can't be in love it's just like this feeling of feeling insane because um (laughs) You've met someone and it's like, like you say, it can't be based on like a reciprocal romantic relationship because you're obsessed with them probably because you can't have them. And it's like such a specific experience that I feel like I've had not for a very long time, but like in my late teens, (laughs) early 20s. Recently. Yeah. Where it makes you dumb. Like it makes you kind of weak at the knees and like feel like you have three brain cells and incapable of doing or thinking about anything else. And all of the normal rules of engagement where you care about like your pride or what other people think of you just goes out the window and you'll call someone over and over again at the most embarrassing times. You'll like just completely denigrate yourself for this person. And then when you get out of it, I feel like often you feel like it wasn't even about that person. It was about something else that you were going through emotionally and that's why I love Dick is so incredible because it goes through this journey of her being obsessed with this man to the point where he thinks she's crazy but she's like I don't even care that you think I'm crazy at this point because I need to figure out what it is about you that is making me feel this way yeah. and she goes and meets him and talks to him and is like talking through her obsession with him and he's like what the fuck and she's like I know I know I know oh my god I got up to the yes I can't wait <laughs> yeah it's iconic Chris Krause is iconic amazing yeah it's such an odd un kind of diagnosed period in women's lives I feel like I get like that every time I well yeah not to the point you get like that with unrequited love when you're young I think where you just where literally like one person could be like just text him and you know that you've already texted him 10 times and it's not a good idea to text him again but all someone's like like, don't call him don't call him like don't call him and then you just go and do and you know they're gonna think it's weird you know it's not like you know everyone's telling you not to and you just do it because your brain is like shrunken to the size of a pea yeah i know yeah so i love dick is such a great book shall we talk now about the craziest thing we've both been obsessed with recently and that is (laughs) Tom Hanks and Rita, what was her name before Hanks? Wilson. Really um, sexist of me. Yeah, Rita Wilson. <laughs> Tom Hanks and Mrs. Hanks. <laughs> Tom Hanks and his wife's son, <laughs> Chet Hanks. He's 30 years old. He's a rapper. What's his rap name? Chez. He spells his name H-A-N-X. Yeah. <laughs> And he is trying to make a new phenomenon happen called White Boy Summer. 
this is such a great story because it's funny and then the more you read into it you realize that Chet Hanks is like accidentally making a wider cultural commentary but he's Mm. obviously obsessed with black American culture he always does these videos with this really embarrassing like Jamaican American accent he's always posting pictures like dirty dancing with black women or rapping really poorly or talking in african-american slang it's just like the first thing is just it's so difficult to believe that he is the child of tom hanks i think that's like first and foremost i just wonder what happened conversations tom and rita are having about this at the dinner table him saying mum, dad i just released a song it's called white boy summer and his brother's Colin Hanks, who's just a mini Tom Hanks and is so normal and was in like Fargo season one and just looks like a dad. And I'm like, how can two children have the same genes and be this different? Yeah, I think some kids of, of fame like that just kind of, I don't know. They look for ways to be different. They just go, like even what's-his-face, Priestley Gerber mm. tattooed something really weird on his face. <laughs> that's embarrassing yeah and doesn't seem okay but Kaya's like a mini Cindy Crawford there's always one it's always the boy so Chet Hanks put up a video saying boys I'm gonna like this year it's all about the white boy summer I feel it hey guys um look I just wanted to tap in really quick I just got this feeling man um that this summer is uh it's about to be a white boy summer you know, take it how you want. I'm not talking about like Trump, uh, you know, NASCAR type white. I'm talking about, you know, you know, me, um, John B, Jack Harlow type white boy summer. You know what I mean? Let me know if you guys uh, can vibe with that and uh, get ready, you know, because I am. And then he kind of put up some follow up posts saying, you know, white boy summer, like don't wear salmon colored shorts because they're embarrassing. Don't go up to women and make them feel uncomfortable. Don't be uh, prejudiced against people of different racial groups. And at first it seemed like this kind of nice semi, not really, but semi like healthy archetype of white appreciation of black culture. Like it seems. Yeah, like, or just like reframing <laughs> what it means to be a white boy. And this summer it's going to be focused on white boys kind of rehabilitating themselves. So he was like, there's no calling girls smoke shows. Guys should stop getting drunk and sweaty and they should stop getting in people's personal space with booze breath. And he was like, gentlemen, it's time for us to evolve. But then things took a dark turn. Yeah, <laughs> well, that, yeah. Then he released a single and it all just became a bit annoying. Boy, it's a white boy summer. <laughs> Bad gal, white dandada. <laughs> Rude boy, it's a white boy That's all about a cabana. Rolling marijuana and they offer guy. It's like when you just let a joke go too far and it becomes embarrassing. Where he and released merch. white boy summer merch with like a questionable font. Yeah, it's a font that was as kind of like related to the Nazis. And like the Proud Boys. So he's just so silly. Mm. But then he did white boy summer, but then he did black queen summer. Asian Queen Summer, Asian King Summer, and it was almost putting white boys like Tom Hanks needs to cut him off from his pocket money. So at first it seemed like it was this kind of goofy, embarrassing, but mainly innocent kind of thing. And now it seems to be taking a darker turn. 
because his ex-girlfriend Kiana Parker, who's a black woman, has come out and accused him of being physically and verbally abusive towards her. And then he leaked a video which he said was of her stabbing him with a knife (laughs) to TMZ. (laughs) But she's like, that's literally not real. And then there was some stuff got unearthed from 2015 of him. He had rap songs where he used the N-word. He says it in White Boy Summer. Oh, does he? Yeah. Oh, oh, okay. No. Crazy, eh? Well, like, I haven't haven't literally Googled the words, but before I was telling my housemate about it, I was like, oh, it's a bit of a tune, actually, because I'd listened to a 15-second soundbite on Instagram, and she put it on on YouTube, and we were watching the music video, and she was like, wait, did he just say the N-word? And then we rewound it three times, and both our four ears say, yeah. Yeah, that's in line with his past philosophy where he justified his right to use it because he said that the word was being changed through the art of rap, but um, obviously not, not by, by white you, people. Chit. God, he's so annoying. So, yeah, so now the white boy summer has taken, like, a truly dark and disturbing turn and Chet Hanks is just a troubling racist. The funniest stuff about it all is journalists reporting on it. Yeah. For The Guardian. Awa Madawi wrote a piece on it where she was just like taking the piss, but she goes, I got this feeling, man, it's about to be a white boy summer, Chet Hanks told his Instagram followers a couple of weeks ago. Not in a racist kind of way, he clarified, but in a white male rapper sort of way. You know what I mean? Nobody had the foggiest idea what he meant. So Hanks has been helpfully dishing out rules and regs for white boy summer. There's no, yeah, it's just like so funny. There's no calling girls smoke shows. Guys should stop getting drunk. Bottom line here, gentlemen, it's time for us to evolve. It's time for us to go from a Pikachu to a Raichu. I don't know what that means, but apparently evolving Hank style involves avoiding plaid shirts or anything salmon coloured. Instead, you should wear clothes from his white boy summer merchandise collection. So he like popped up for the first time in our kind of circles. (laughs) Obviously, he's been in this weird genre of whatever he's doing in LA for a while, but he popped up when he announced to the world that Tom and Rita had coronavirus. Yes, that's right. And he announced it on Instagram with his shirt off, being like, yeah, mum and dad have got COVID. (laughs) And then this. Fast forward one year, this is what the pandemic does to you. It's just crazy. It's such a fascinating thing to read about and like obsess over. And I feel like I got in such a dark black hole of his account today. Naomi Fry, who's such a fucking great and hilarious. She's hilarious on Instagram and a great writer for The New Yorker. She wrote a piece called The Squandered Promise of Chet Hanks' White Boy Summer. And then she said, perhaps in the end, we weren't nearly as ready for it as we might have wanted to be. And she basically is writing about how there is kind of room for figures who like reframe whiteness in the way that he's aiming to which is like just as kind of banal and boring as embarrassing as any other type of like how we talked about last year with race where it's like white people are so used to just seeing themselves as raceless or or not belonging anywhere because the dominancy of whiteness means that people are like I don't know where the fuck I'm from I'm just white like you you think it's the norm and that everything else is a deviation from you Whereas this idea of like turning whiteness into an identity with traits and stereotypes and all of these things, which is the way all other races see white people, to have white people being self-aware of that and self-referential of it seemed kind of like a good idea. But he's obviously not a very good person to be doing it. (laughs) Chet Hanks leading the charge. Yeah. (sighs) Chet Hanks. 
Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. we do Scott Rudin quickly? Oh, yeah. Maybe just quickly. Mm-hmm. So something I was just reading, or we were both reading before we jumped on the call, was this new Hollywood Reporter expose on Scott Rudin. And it's like the Harvey Weinstein of emotional abuse, basically. He's as powerful, if not more powerful, than Harvey Weinstein as a Hollywood producer. And, like, Weinstein had had a reputation for, like, decades for just being the most obnoxious, difficult person to work for. And now this Hollywood Report expose has revealed the extent of his emotional and sometimes physical abuse of his employees. And it's super crazy. It's so funny how we – I mean, we've talked about this on the pod before, but it's funny how we just it's, – it's actually crazy to me that we're still at such kind of obvious parts of – talking about sexual assault or emotional abuse or physical abuse like it literally has to be a harvey weinstein who had raped Mm -hmm. upwards of 30 women allegedly and like a hundred women had come forward with stories about him so for us to even be talking about emotional abuse feels like we've come a really long way but it's so funny that someone could get away with this for so long in the industry because it's just deemed normal and even now we're still talking about the most obvious sexual assaults that like it's crazy that this man so he's been nominated for like 100 oscars i think 100 to 200 in terms of ones that he's yeah. like worked on as exec producer and he's an egot so he's won like an emmy a grammy an oscar and a tony yeah and for him to get away with literally slamming a laptop down on an employee's hands because they couldn't book him a seat on a sold out flight and the person had to go to hospital <laughs> that's wild this is thing about power like in all of the reportings about him people will talk about how he's difficult and then in the next sentence talk about how he's brilliant Mm -hmm. even i was writing a story recently sorry this is a bit of a tangent the tequila's like gone to my head but i was (laughs) i made one margarita and i'm like i feel quite drunk so yeah like it's i find it just so crazy how far we still have to go as a culture to kind of get our heads around things like trauma and sexual assault and emotional abuse and physical abuse and everything i was writing a piece recently for side note about language and how we use language and it was kind of similar to the quote you shared on instagram when sarah Everett got murdered about the way we speak about violence against women and then i talked about chanel Mm -hmm. miller and how when brock turner raped her when she was unconscious 
Time magazine, like when he literally was in prison and he only served three months out of his six-month sentence, was still referring to him as a Stanford star swimmer until about the fourth paragraph Mm. of the story. I was like, media outlets have so much to do with how we respond to things and how we view things. For example, with this Scott Rudin guy, his behavior would have been deemed acceptable for so long because media outlets kind of acted like it was. With Scott Rudin, it was in every article that was about him. I was aware of it dating back to the, do you remember the Sony email hack? No, vaguely. Feel old yet? It was like years ago. What happened? North Korea hacked North Korea hacked Sony's email archive because they were releasing that stupid Seth Rogen movie about Kim Jong-un. Oh my God, that's right. James Franco or something's in it. Yeah, and in that Scott Rudin's emails, because apparently this is going to be one of those like Hollywood stories. Angelina Jolie's passion project for like 15 years has been a remake of Cleopatra where she's Cleopatra and it just keeps getting pushed back because she wants like 200 million for it or something. And Scott Rudin, his emails about her came out and he called her like a talentless <laughs> brat oh <my> God. or something. <laughs> so people know he's an asshole, but now there's stuff in this report is about how he used to just like throw plates and bowls against the wall in office meetings that would shatter. And there's a story of a girl who had a panic attack during a meeting after he threw a glass bowl against a wall and had to be escorted out in an ambulance. Jare, like... And another girl who worked there had diabetes, so she needed to carve out half an hour of exercise a day. So he had to sign off for her to be able to exercise from 5.30 a.m. to 6 a.m. So that she could have half an hour at 5.30 a.m. that he wouldn't be contacting her. That's crazy. And he fired someone for bringing him the wrong muffin from the cafe. He'd been through 120 assistants in, like, six years. So wild. But like you say, I think the thing about this is... As soon as you zoom out, you just think this is the most insane behavior. But in so many industries, especially glamorized industries like Hollywood or fashion or art or the finance industry, where there's this area of kind of mystique around it, or if there's a lot of money to be made, we've just have this cultural thing of you just have to cop it. It doesn't matter how hard it is. It doesn't matter how badly people treat you. And I feel like even you and I have had a pretty easy great experience of our careers but even we have allowed things that are insane to be Mm. totally normalized to the point we don't even think about them in terms of inappropriate workplace stuff yeah even after I talked about my old work when I was like 20 and how the boss was really creepy and how I was still coming to terms with how I felt about it because at the same time he was really nice to me and I really liked him I had people messaging me from that workplace being like I put in a formal complaint about him when I left. Mm. And it's like, this is stuff that you just normalize because you just, when it's your experience, you're like, oh, it's not that bad. Like one of my former bosses was so horrible to me that every single day I went into work, I would know how my day was going to be based on how she said hello to me. Because it's so, with women, it's so as well subtle. Whereas with men, like I always think that Whenever I overhear men on a work call, I think that they're angry at each other because they're being so blunt and forward. And I'm like, oh, are you guys, is, is this, was that an argument? Are you guys having a, a bad time? And they're just like, no, that's just how we speak to each other. It's just forward. And it's thing. I know I'm really generalizing because a lot of workplaces might not be like this, but this is just my experience. Whereas every time I've worked under a woman, it has been this kind of weird, not every time, but 
we've had some great bosses actually but yeah it's it's with women it's so different well there was i was watching another interview with sofia coppola and she was talking about her movie the beguiled and it's set in 18th century or something and she was saying that the thing that was so exciting about that script was that it was six women living in a house together and she basically said that what they were saying in the script was the opposite of what they were actually saying to each other so the actresses had to get used to saying a completely different set of dialogue with their body movements to what they were saying in the Mm. script and she was like that's in my experience, how women communicate with each other. What we say is not that relevant, but our tone and us withholding affection. Yes, not putting an X on the end of a message. Yeah. Exclamation mark instead. Like it's very... It is actually... In this, it's like sign language. It is. And this goes back to the I love Dick Chris Krause thing where it's like so much of the way that women communicate with each other is unexplored in like art and literature, but is actually really nuanced and really interesting. And I think the way that women relate to each other in a business setting. It's that thing of like you can sit at a dinner or sit at a lunch and someone can say something and what they actually said if you had to go to HR isn't bad, but you know they were trying to embarrass you or undermine you or belittle you in this very aggressive way. But because it's not this masculine like physical aggression, throwing a bowl against a wall or screaming or slamming something down – it's like emotional warfare, basically. It's so much harder. It's so hard to explain. Like I would get home from work every night and I would be in this tizzy and I would be trying to make dinner and I would just be explaining it and explaining it and explaining it to my ex-boyfriend. And he obviously got it because I had a chance to talk to him so much about it that he understood what was going on. But it's like to the average person, if you showed them, say if me and you were in a fight and I showed someone a text you'd sent me, they would just be like, that seems like she's fine. And it's like, no, I know what she's saying. I know, yeah. Or it's like if me and you had a fight talking and you show someone the transcript, Mm. they'd be like, what? (laughs) And you'd say, no, because she said this this way or the fact that she phrased this thing this way means something. And I think that's – I remember interviewing the model Carolyn Murphy for work and she was saying how – she was so happy the Me Too movement was happening but she felt like in fashion specifically like the sexual predation of photographers was like – a tiny part of the problem and now Karen Elson who's another supermodel of that era is putting all over her Instagram stories tales of the kind of psychological warfare that is waged on models where it's chipping away at their self-esteem stuff like making models cut their hair into ugly hairstyles so they won't get work as revenge for something they're things that sound oh my god yeah they they sound from a masculine <laughs> perspective kind of like random or stupid or just part of the job like they're hard to put your finger on but if you're a woman you hear Mm. that and you're like that is evil like that's the purest evil making people purposefully miss appointments or refusing to give them referrals or refusing to give them introductions or help them out to things these are all very intentional acts of like emotional manipulation or abuse or sabotage that happen in workplaces all the time but we haven't yet figured out the vocabulary to name them for what they are Obviously, we're talking about Scott Rudin, but it's so hard with women as well because a lot of it isn't even that the people are horrible people. It's just how they've been taught to be in the workplace because Mm. we're taught that there's only a certain amount of slots and we're white women. Mm -hmm. Imagine being a a black woman or a, a different minority group, but it's like even white women are taught that there's only so many spots at the top. So we are, if another person comes in, like I've felt like that towards. 
junior staff members or my interns where they would write something really well or they would walk into the office and they would be really stylish and be really well received and be really funny and be really chatty and I would feel this like competitiveness with them which is so horrible someone said the other day on Instagram well I don't even know where it was they were like not being able to be happy for your friends is internalized capitalism because you're just seeing Mm. them as competition for jobs that's crazy Yeah, that's so great. It's so true as well. Yeah, I think this stuff is so interesting. And I think that the transparency, just quickly to go back to the Scott Rudin thing, it reminds me of, obviously, it's not to that degree, but like the devil wears Prada trope, where it's really mythologized in our culture to be totally overbearing or totally impossible to please or like wrecking someone's entire life for their job that's not a high paid job. The fact that that movie was such a hit and that people are like Miranda Priestly's fucking iconic and and all of that stuff is like such a capitalist thing where we obsess over people who are hard industrialists who work their workers to the bone we celebrate them in our culture as heroes yeah and then that makes us question when that's happening to us at work because we're like oh well that, they're just brilliant like they're brilliant at what they do therefore this stuff is fine and it's like no you can be good at your job and not make your employees' lives hell. Yeah. Okay, final thing we wanted to talk about was that we both listened to um, an episode on The Cut on Tuesdays, which I haven't really listened to that much since Molly Fisher, who was their really cute little host, joined. I think she now writes for the New York Times magazine or New Yorker, one of, one of the other, but she left mm. the podcast. And now I listen to it less because she was just super cute. But basically they did a episode this week on burnout and I put it on and it was funny because burnout just feels like such a buzzword and it feels like it's such a nothing word at the same time. Like it's kind of like how we'll say, oh, we're triggered or oh, we're anxious or oh, we're this when you don't even mean it. So you just be like, oh, burnout's not even a thing. But it kind of made me, listening to the episode just made me be more sympathetic to how both of us have been feeling recently in terms of work and life like I've been feeling so overwhelmed for the smallest things at the moment and I know that COVID is obviously such a crazy situation for us to be in and it's kind of weird when you've been in this lockdown for four months and now it's slowly lifting when you're in it it's hard to kind of even figure out how much that's impacting you and I think that a lot of the way that both of us are acting or both of us are feeling has to do with this lockdown and this specific situation we're in Mm -hmm. but whenever it's a mental thing and it's not a physical thing you just brush it off and you're like oh I'm fine I have a roof over my head I have work I have friends I'm in love everything is fine why are you acting like this and you beat yourself up so much but it's actually like burnout is an actual condition just like depression and just like anxiety but even with depression I'll do the exact same thing I'll wake up and if I feel sad or if I start having spiraling thoughts my first thought every single time is like shut the fuck up what have you got to complain about and this episode was really interesting because they got Esther Farrell on who we both love she is a therapist behind the podcast series where should we begin and she actually has another podcast series which is all about work and she talks about how we just put so much emphasis on our romantic relationships, but also how much emphasis we put on work to fulfill us. So we look at work for our identity 
and work becomes kind of a mirror for how we view ourselves in the world, which I found really interesting because I also read a piece on British Vogue the other day where a woman was talking about how other women always need their friends to approve their romantic partners. Like she was just talking about how her friend was like, oh, you know, like this guy she'd been dating. She was like, oh, the guy I've been dating also loves like the same TV show you love. And And the girl was like, yeah, cool. Okay. And she was like, I texted him and said that you love it too. And he said, I love her already. And she like sent a screen grab of the conversation. And the woman was like, okay, cool. That's fine. Like whatever. And and we always just need this kind of validation from our friends because it's then validating how we see ourselves. Yeah. I remember doing that when the girls I worked with at my last job met Zach for the first time. It means I had been together for like a year and we, he came to drinks we were having. And when he was in the bathroom, I remember being like, do you guys like him? And then I heard, I was like, what? I was like, you've known these people for less time. Like it was just this mm. weird thing I was like used to doing where you bond with other women over like validating choices that you make. So my first thing of getting intimate with these people from work that I was friends with was like, oh, I, I want them to be like, yeah, he's so great. We love him. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah. It's such a weird question to ask. In what world would Zach ever ask his colleagues, do you like my girlfriend when I went to the bathroom? It's just like so – I admit that was kind of weird for me to do. But like it was that thing, that do you like him thing is such a, a girl thing and with work. Yeah, or even just projecting their best qualities or their most kind of whatever qualities to your friends. Like I do that. I still do that mm. now where I'll literally be like, oh, you know, like tell a story to, to make the person sound a specific way because that then in your own brain makes you feel a specific way because that person chose to be with you. And it's kind of like work as well where, for example, in our jobs, if you're writing for a specific publication or if you're doing something that you think other people would be proud of, it's like it's almost – it's even less about doing the thing and getting published in the place as it is about how what that shows you as being, like how it proves to other people and to yourself that you're worthy of that thing. It's like us just putting so much value into work and the work we do as as well as our relationships, like almost just as much. Yeah, yeah. Does that make sense? A hundred percent, I think. And that, that podcast that we're talking about, touched on which I found so fucking interesting Esther Perel like she's just such a legend she'll just kind of say this thing really casually and it like changes my life she was like eros which is this idea of erotic attraction she was like exists in your personal relationships but it also exists in your relationship with work so there's this idea that you can have this erotic attachment and fulfillment through the work that you do And when she said that, my brain kind of exploded because I was like, that is, especially with what we do with freelance, so much of what we do is this kind of tantalizing, like flirtatious chase over two certain goals where it's like almost dating where you send off an email and then you hear back and then you're really excited and then you try to figure out how you should respond and it culminates in this thing that brings you lots of joy and it's it's almost like our relationship with work is kind of romantic in a weird way when you're someone that's obsessed with what you do. So what they kind of got to in this podcast was that the way that we look at regulating our romantic relationships to make them healthy, we should be taking some of those like tricks and applying them to our work in the same way. Yeah. Like how I was talking about at the start, how Alan Devodden was like, we look to 
our romantic relationship as someone to kind of give us everything. Esther Perel was like, we look to work for belonging and for identity and for growth and for self-development and for purpose and for meaning and for community. Like it's weird if you're not also friends with your workmates and that like love and work have become these vessels where we go to fulfill some of our most important existential needs and the fact that we want passion in both of them all the time. I think with work, the, the best thing, the, the best tool I have at the moment is going, think of yourself two years ago. Tell two years ago, Izzy, where you are today mm-hmm. and think of how happy she would be. Because otherwise, every single goal I hit just feels completely irrelevant. Like yesterday, a publication I've wanted to write for forever replied to me and want me to write a piece for them. And the minute I got that email, I just was like, on to the next thing. Or it wasn't the pitch I wanted them to say yes to, so I feel upset or whatever. It's like such a crazy mindset we're in. And I think so much of it is to do with the fact that like we have been locked in houses for four months. And I know it's a bit different in Australia and New Zealand, but still for the majority of the past year, all of us have basically only had work and those very close to us for relationships. We haven't had any outside socializing or anything. So work has become this really intense thing for us to channel all our time and energy and thought mm-hmm. into. And so suddenly you start you start overanalyzing everything you're doing and freaking out about where you are and where you should be. And like suddenly all of the things that you used to look at on social media and be able to ignore, you can't anymore because what else are you doing? Yeah, exactly. I loved, like you said, I wrote down a quote from this where she said, when work is where you search for self-worth, it becomes unrelenting. And it's that idea of us putting your value of yourself or your sense of self-worth in any single singular thing is going to disappoint you. Like if you just put it in your friends or you Mm. just put it in your partner, you just put it in your work or you just put it in how you look or your social media following, you're always going to feel empty during some points because things like lull and trough. And she says what she always says to couples is true for everyone with everything, which is diversify the things that you get your self-worth from because then you're never going to be like depleted because you always have other things going on that make you feel good even if one element isn't at its best because it can't always be at its best. You can't always be on those career highs. It's impossible. Yeah. Especially when you when you're locked in a house for four months, but it's also I was thinking about how we're so hard on ourselves when we have things like burnout or things like depression, even because you constantly are thinking others have it worse than me, or you know I should get over it or whatever. But they talk in the episode about the need for community, which I feel is literally all I keep going on about, um, and how our individualistic focus right now means that we think of these mental health issues as being a problem with ourselves rather than being a problem with society. And the first time I ever thought about that was kind of mind boggling for me because it's like, maybe we're all burnt out and maybe we're all depressed because of the way society around us is run. There's a reason that mental health issues are worse than ever before. And it's not because we're suddenly all just feeling that way out of nothing and I and I never thought of that before because everything's so focused on the individual you're focused on the fact that you have depression or you have anxiety and that's a problem with you and that's a problem with the way your mind works and you need to work on it through therapy and it's like yes those things help and it feels like a personal failure which is ridiculous yeah and it feels yeah. like a personal failure and yes those things kind of help you to work on strategies and ways of fixing it but it's also when you think of it outside of yourself and think there's a reason that so many people have the same mental health issues I have 
and it's because of the way society is run it's because we're all focused on it's because of capitalism and we're all focused on work and money and those are the things that make you successful and that's really really stressful and that will make you feel burnt out that was kind of life-changing for me and it was I'm not sure if I've recommended him properly before but it was from a British writer and philosopher called Mark Fisher who really sadly actually died by suicide a few years ago after writing all of these amazing really really groundbreaking articles on depression and on capitalism he's written heaps of books and he was the first person that made me think that it's it's not us that's the issue Whereas we're, we're told it's us. It's like fucking seaspiracy. We're told it's us. It's the issue mm-hmm. with our plastic straws. But it's not us at all. It's the commercial fishing boats. It's the government's giving them money. It's way bigger than us. And people want us to focus on it being our issue and focus on like whether we're recycling properly rather than looking at the bigger picture. Because that makes everything stay the yeah, same. Yeah, totally. Which is what they want. And it's like we were just saying before, it's like under capitalism... <laughs> gonna go like i know i hate saying i literally hate talking about capitalism i know there's it, all these phrases have been so bastardized we need to like rebirth new words mm. for them but it's like under that system suffering at work is glorified so we've talked before about the tv show industry which is a hbo show about a young group of grads working in i think investment banking in london and in the opening episode, spoiler, sorry, uh, a guy literally works himself to death. And that's based on a real case that happened in the UK. And it's this idea that we glorify a certain level of like mental anguish and pain and mental health and suffering and being so busy that you want to cry and like all of that stuff. That's all really glorified in our culture as being tied to genius and wealth is then tied into that as well and the way that we revere people like Elon Musk or the way that we treat Kim Kardashian becoming a billionaire like a great thing to be celebrated like hashtag girl boss what an icon what a queen the fact that we see Kim Kardashian making a billion dollars off marketing a totally unrealistic body and an unrealistic face to young women (laughs) and playing off their insecurities to make money. The fact that we put that on the cover of magazines and see that as aspirational and exciting and worthy of obsessing over is what keeps all of this shit in place. Like the fact that we have the Oscars and that they reward people that we know are bad people because it doesn't matter as long as they're making work, but like the work that's rewarded is also the work that makes a lot of money. all of that stuff is just so connected to the point where we can't work just a normal amount that gives us ease and relaxation without feeling guilty and like we're not doing enough. Yeah. Can you imagine if there was no focus on money or what you made or like what I was saying earlier, how so many people go to university because they're, they're worried about making money. Like sometimes I will fight with myself where I'm like, I just don't care about making money that much I just don't I just want to do what I love and then the next day I'm brought back into this whole thing where I'm like wait I want to own a house like all my friends who already own houses at this age why don't I own a house yet I'm a failure and it's like it's just it all feeds into everything but this is the thing with capitalism is that it it like thrives on you not being satisfied because if everyone just sat and was tomorrow satisfied with the amount of money they had coming in each month and 
didn't buy superfluous things and didn't live above their means and didn't spend money they don't have on status symbols that don't mean anything except making like 10 people you don't really like think that you're doing well if that system stopped tomorrow our whole society would crumble (laughs) because most of us would not have jobs anymore you know what I mean it's like that constant wanting and aspiring and never being satisfied is what the whole system runs on. Yeah, and even I don't know how we've gone into this conversation, but even I was talking the other day. Um, According to Karl Marx, <laughs> <laughs> but even I was talking the other day about how because basically one of Mark Fisher's his most famous work is a book called Capitalist Realism, and that phrase means when you can't imagine anything other than capitalism, which is kind of us now because like. You think of an alternative to capitalism and you think of socialism, which then leads to communism, which is scary and bad and Russia and China. And so we don't think that there's any alternative other than that. So we feel like we're stuck. And that's exactly how people want us to feel. They want us to feel like there's no alternative to capitalism because the only other way is going back to what it was, which doesn't work. And then I was thinking the other day where I was like, okay, you know, I feel like a fraud because I say I hate capitalism. But at the same time, I love buying beautiful clothes. I'm a fashion journalist. like. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I love buying expensive skincare. I love going for massages. I love doing this. I love doing that. My boyfriend was like, yeah, but there's an alternative to how we're living now, which means you can still have the things you want, but... Okay, capitalism affords you being able to buy a perfume you like, clothes you like, being able to live this life where you can eat at beautiful restaurants and have fun and travel. But what are the things it doesn't give you? And I was like, well, I really, really, really like cannot handle the fact that there's so many homeless people. I can't handle the fact that getting help for mental health is such a privilege. I can't handle the fact that the class systems, all of these things, race, like all of these things lead back to capitalism and he was like okay well how much would you be willing to give up to like ensure there weren't homeless people on the streets begging for money and I was like of course I would give up being able to afford the third perfume we're not saying you have to go back to communism or not not afford anything of your own but it's like it's like what does it give you versus what doesn't it give you and it's like there's so much it doesn't give you exactly and it's like this idea that I think that people have all the time where it's like oh because the most extreme version of like reform of capitalism is some sort of communist state. It's not worth even trying to improve it or correct it in ways that are helpful and meaningful. It's like we could not change the way that we consume at all and could just change the way that we tax like the 1% and that could fix a lot of the problems that you just talked about. Yeah, It's like the seaspiracy thing, like our day-to-day spending – us buying dumb shit from charity shops around here or like ordering delivery once a week is not the capitalist system in action. You know what I mean? It's like happening on this mega, mega massive scale and we're feeling guilty about how we're doing it. It's, yeah, exa- it's good exactly, to think and talk yeah. about it, but it's like the system is going to be fixed from the top down. Exactly. Ugh. Um, anyway, we just solved the world's <laughs> problems. Everyone should read Mark Fisher, basically. Bye. Bye. (laughs) 
Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.